Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Oh. Say, if you keep going, I'm going to start snoring. <laughs> it's too good. It's I too know, good. It's too good. Amazing. I'm brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm Richard Delavan. I'm your host here at Wicked Problems. If that's the latest scientific finding, we've got to report on it squarely, honestly, and fully. You don't just want to be on the doomly, just reporting doom and gloom. So what do we do? And there's lots of things we can do, should we do it? Tell, tell the truth, Mr. Ed Bretton, to advised us. This is Wicked Problems Climate Tech Podcast for the 1st of November 2023. That was a sample of some of the things we heard in London at day one at the Business Green Net Zero Festival. Festival by name, festival by nature. There were small drinks and big ideas, poetry, comedy, and drama in the form of an Extinction Rebellion protest editor James Murray dealt with in a calm, respectful way that I think a lot of event hosts could learn from. We captured that whole exchange on video, and we'll put a link in the show notes. It was such a good sense check of where climate and climate tech are in the UK right now that we wanted to give you a flavor of what went on both on the main stage and in talking to some of the other participants who staffed a booth to get their message out, like the Felix Project, which collects food that cannot be sold and delivers it to charities and schools. I'm Paul Baines. The Felix Project predominantly works with the food industry. We rescue good quality surplus food from going to waste. 
and then we use it to support a thousand plus other charities, community groups and schools across London. There's going to be a lot of people here interested or involved with tech and innovation. So maybe there's someone here who has the key to helping us unlock more surplus food, getting it saved, getting to people in need. If that food then goes to waste, all that fuel, water, etc., all goes to waste. And then a load of greenhouse gases are put back into the environment as well. So if there are companies here who are interested in sustainability, we can give them first-hand experience. We are restricted in the kind of food that we can save based on health and hygiene regulations. So maybe there's someone who has tech that can perhaps help restaurants or hospitality to make their surplus food salvageable where we can get involved or packaging or technology. We know there are companies who develop things that can turn a, a regular van into a chilled or a frozen van. Perhaps there's going to be something out there that can, can help us to do more to help people in need. We are www.thefelixprojects.org. So look for us there and there's a lot of information about the work we do, how people can volunteer, become a supplier and also a lot of the impact that we do and the charities that we support and work with. As you might expect, COP featured prominently in the discussions. Journalist Lucy Siegel kicked things off by asking Alex Scott of think tank E3G about it. We're now four weeks out from the start of COP28. That's unbelievable, isn't it? I'm lots of people into panic. Um, what's, what's the state of play? I mean, this is a really critical COP because of the global stoptic. This is the first time governments are taking a political response on where we see the gaps and what we're going to do about it. I think there's two other big things on the table at COP28 this year. The first one is how we fund and support vulnerable countries to deal with the impacts of climate change. There's a negotiation around setting up a new fund for dealing with loss and damage when climate impacts hit. And the third thing, I mean, this year's COP is hosted in um, the UAE. This is a real chance to question the role of fossil fuels in the energy transition and come up with some answers on where we need to go next in renewables, but also phasing down the, the dirty stuff as well. There's, there's always these two parts to the COP. There's the negotiations, and then there's everything that happens around the negotiations. How's the UK doing? We have a question here which suggests not that well. Is the UK <laughs> one of those bad actors who are not yet serious about their legal net zero commitment? What can you tell from what they've submitted or what they're going to submit? So the challenge that we have is the NDCs set an end goal target for where we want to be. At, at the moment, we've set targets for 2030. The UK's target is actually one of the more ambitious of all of the developed countries, definitely. The policies in place to get there are lacking. We've, we've heard that from the, the Climate Change Committee. They've been clear on the gaps in UK policymaking and where the UK needs to, to sharpen up. We've also seen a huge backlash, particularly from the business community, which was really useful to see, to the UK watering down some of the policies that had been put in place that we already knew weren't quite enough to meet the goals that we've set. And I think that's a, a key role that we'll need to keep seeing business play, that, that more advocacy role. Business is, of course, also staffing up to make sure that the people are available and the skills to deliver the transition, which was interesting to talk to 
Hayes, the big recruitment consultancy. My name's Paul Gosling. I am the head of sustainability recruitment for Hayes. They are one of the biggest workforce and recruitment firms in the world, whether it be or if finding the right individuals for the roles or developing their careers in the sustainability space. And so we've heard a lot about the potential for skill shortages, the idea that there needs to be reskilling, upskilling. How are you helping clients be able to meet some of those challenges? Yeah, that's a really good question because it is absolutely the biggest issue. Uh, there's a huge demand for people with those sustainability skill sets that haven't been around for that long. I think it's giving everybody an object lesson in, in how to reskill, how to upskill, how to evolve those skills. It's still quite a difficult process to do that. A lot of the conversations we have with clients are around defining what they mean by sustainability. It's still an area that is, is open to interpretation. So I think one of the big challenges is around defining what that means. So how do you, how do you nail that down? How do you help clients kind of figure out what they're actually looking for? It, it's around understanding what it means for them as, as an organization. What's what in the, the jargon, what's material for them? So, so whether they need somebody that's got a particular skill sets in sustainable buildings or whether it's about the communication process or uh, understanding their supply chains, there are a whole different variety of, of different roles within a sustainability function. And it's about understanding what that organization sees and where it fits and also where they have their existing skill sets because a sustainability function is, is part of a wider organization as well. So you have to look at not just that immediate option, but okay, who have you got in the business? Where, do that, where does that skill set fit as well? During the pandemic, we saw a lot of people who decided to kind of chuck in what they were doing before and perhaps look for something that had more meaning, something that yeah. they could see themselves doing for longer. We saw a lot of people leave big tech to be able to come into the climate tech space. How has things worked out now that we're kind of more in a normal time? How have things changed from what you're sitting? It's a really good question. It's an evolving picture, I think. Um, I think the, the ones that have done successfully are the ones that have really embraced getting that direct experience. Uh, there's, there's one thing being interested in a, in a space and being passionate about it. And there's another to be able to add value to an organization that you're going to work for. And the, the, the people that have really succeeded in that process have understood how they need to evolve their skills from what they've already got into a new space. Uh, but I think there are lots of opportunities. As I was saying before, it's a very skills tight market for people with lots of experience in sustainability. So it's around identifying the, the transferable skills that, that you have and then, then looking to use those in a new environment. And where can potential employers or indeed candidates find more information from you guys? So our website's always a good place to start. There's some really good podcasts on there about how people have developed that as well. So an opportunity to, to cross-sell into another podcast. Sustainable Futures Career Conversations is a good one that you might want to have a look at. Thanks very much, Paul. So much for your time. Really appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of the conference. As climate becomes a more contested topic, communications featured prominently in the discussions as well. There was a great conversation with Leo Hickman, the editor of Carbon Brief, and editor of Business Green, James Murray. So we give you some excerpts of that including some pretty juicy details about the expose that Carbon Brief's Simon Evans got done, exposing some of the problems with a paper put out by the think tank Civitas. Uh, welcome, Leo. As many of you will know, uh, Leo, uh, he worked at The Guardian for over 15 years um, and is also the founder of the award-winning website Carbon Brief, uh, which I think we can all agree has become an essential resource for anyone working uh, in the climate space. I think... It was kind of inevitable that certain national newspapers in particular, some broadcasters, would grab on to Net Zero in particular and try and create this kind of weight issue and use it in this the, the, the device's politics and the environment we have at the moment. 
it's, it's sadly not that surprising that the climate's been dragged into this. I think net zero, it's quite easy to portray it as uh, this is going to hurt the poor, this transition is going to hurt you kind of narrative, and that plays into a real us and them divide, I think, and I think it's, and I think in the, in the near term, I think this, is, this seems to be what's happening. It's part of a longer term narrative, I think, and a longer term playbook, and we're going to be talking a little bit in a minute, I think, about a particular good example of the, of the playbook about how this kind of ecosystem of what I consider to be quite bad faith actors, to be honest, a mixture of ideologies, vested interests, etc., all coming together to support these wider attacks on, on net zero through through media channels and then ultimately through the politics. It feels quite febrile and quite fast moving, but you could say everyone remain calm, this is this is not really doing anything in the polls, um, but you've got the King's speech coming up, you've got reporting over the weekend suggesting that Rishi Sunak wants to double down even further on some of this kind of anti-net zero policy and this um, I'm for the motorist kind of rhetoric. Um, so it's very, very kind of interesting times, as they say, and there is quite a lot to play for. The lesson from the US and Australia and some other countries is that the media can weaponize this stuff and it can have real-world impacts. And it's, it is a whole ecosystem, isn't it? It's not just the media organizations, it's the, the think tanks, the politicians giving them the stories as well. There was this report out by Civitas, but I think some of you have seen, but it's, it's, it's really illustrative of what happens here. So, Leo, for those who might not have seen this story, you know, who are Civitas? And what was this report, and then how did it start to play? So, Civitas are one of a cluster of kind of right-leaning, what they would describe as think tanks, but many people would describe them as lobbyists, um, that are characterised as being located physically around Tufton Street, so very close to Westminster, the Institute of Economic Affairs, the Global Warming Policy Foundation, Civitas, they're all based literally at the same address, 55 Tufton Street. Um, and the playbook is that they pump out every few months, they'll put out a report, and they'll feed it to a friendly journalist in advance so that they can um, cover it, and it will be something... This was a very good example. So um, they were trying to put some sort of cost or economic numbers onto the net zero transition and effectively came up with this kind of wild, big, scary number, which journalists love because it means on the front page you can say net zero transition is going to cost X trillion or million or billion or whatever. And the first I heard of this, I, I, I got wind of this about two days before the embargo. So they'll put it out on embargo and hope that all the other journalists follow it as well, but often give it as an exclusive to someone. Um, and I, I'd heard that the Telegraph had been given this as an exclusive. Um, and the Telegraph journalists would then go to other organisations, as any reporter would do, and say, can you give me a quote because I'm writing a story about this report. So they have to show it to other entities. So other entities get sight of it and go, hang on a second, those numbers don't look very sensible. And the word amongst the journalists was that there's this kind of slightly crazy Civitas report about to come out with some very ill-judged and ill-sought-through numbers and flatly wrong numbers. Um, what's going to happen? Sure enough, a load of newspapers kind of went with it and sort of splashed with it, all the ones you'd expect them to, and they all moved like a sort of herd. It was very interesting to watch. And actually, one of Simon's tweets lower down in this long-running thread shows you some of the media coverage. So if you go, go here, that way, you, you, you know, sort of sit here. 
So he did a screenshot of Google News to show that morning which publications were reporting it. He had the Spectator, the Express, the Mail, the Times, I'm not sure that's probably Guido Forks. So Civitas have been quite clever. They, they handed it to certain media outlets, knowing that they would get effectively um, uncritical coverage. No one would really drill into the numbers. They would report it at face value and create all of these alarming headlines. And, so and job, job done. And important to point out, these headlines will reach millions of people. Yeah. These, are, these are big circulations. These are made in a mainstream national with all the you know, websites that go global. And then going back a step, I mean, there's lots of reports like this every single few, every single month, every couple of weeks, there will be reports similar to this. Where this one was particularly egregious is there's often kind of like, there's some logic behind the analysis or some rationale, even if it's a bit partisan. Um, this one wasn't like that, was it? There were, we go back to some of the points that Simon's picked up, he picked up 13 of them, but I mean, you know, just to give everyone a quick overview, there were some real fundamental errors in this report. Like, almost like pre-GCSE type maths. <laughs> and you, and you, the, pers- like, the person who's doing it is this kind of economics consultant, etc. Et so you get this um, puffing up of credentials, which then persuades the journalists, okay, that looks legit, oh, we'll report on that uncritically. So you get this kind of snowballing effect. Um, and yeah, there's, there's way too many to go through here, but it, it, was a, it effectively took Simon about, sort of, I think, 11 minutes to <coughs> multiply de- debunk the whole thing. Um, but then what happened is we could almost see this car crash happening in slow motion. We, as I said, we knew in advance this was coming, so we were kind of going, surely they're not going to report that without checking it. Sure enough, on the day, all these, all those publications published it. And so, sorry, just to interrupt yeah. again, just to, have to point out quite how cynical this is, I don't think that's an unfair word. Simon did talk to the author before yeah. it was published, and he did point out some of the, not, not the things that you could contest and say, well, you know, these projections are a bit off, or we're not certain about this. Actual maths mistakes. He, he, he actually spoke to him and said, flat out wrong, do you know there's a big error, right? Yeah. You've got a decimal point. So they had a moment, they had 24 hours, Civitas plus the journalists covering it, to go, whoa, 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 okay, you know, let's let's pull the report, let's you know redo the numbers, etc. But no, they just they just steamed ahead with it. Um, and of course, then then another thing that's interesting about this story is that they they did withdraw it. They had to two days later after being laughed at quite a lot on Twitter, um, yeah, X as we should now call it, that's a whole other thing about the media world, so we should talk about that as well, but um, they withdrew it. I mean, were you surprised when they withdrew it, when they, when they actually caved to the criticism to a degree? I wasn't surprised, because you knew deep down they had to. If they want, Don't forget that Civitas is, quote-unquote, an educational charity registered with the Charities Commission, so they actually have some duties under the charities, you know, as being a charity, that they have to, they can't put out the kind of egregiously wrong and incorrect and misinformation. So we knew they were going to have to do something about it. But it was it was really interesting watching, as I said, in slow motion, not just the way it was published, then the reaction, and then the, the kind of slow and then rapid retreat of both Civitas, who had to pull it, but then also the publications as well. So for me, it was fascinating watching the Daily Mail in particular, who absolutely hate having to admit they're wrong um, and will do anything they can to not have to publish a correction or a clarification due to their kind of, if you want to, over time. 
So one by one, many of these publications added little notes on their web pages saying, you know, this, you know, Civitas have pulled this report, or, or you know, are correcting the numbers or whatever. But it came to the point where you actually have to delete the article because everything about it is wrong, and that was a very interesting test for these media outlets. But of course, now, as you touched upon, we're journalists. We are quite cynical by by nature, and a cynic would say that didn't make much difference. They got what they wanted. You know, the corrections or the withdrawals reach a much smaller audience than the initial headlines. I mean, would you? Well, would you sign up to that view that they did kind of still get what they wanted? And if so, what on earth can be done about that? Because that's a big problem. I, in this particular example, I don't think Civitas actually thought it was all part of the master plan. We'll put out something incorrect, it will get three days of headlines. And it'll get, I don't think that happened. But I do think there is an argument for saying they might, in retrospect, thinking, OK, we took a hit with that, but we still ended up with two days of headlines that went around the world saying how costly net zero transition with kind of... Two, orders of magnitude wrong numbers, slow, can't deal with issues like this. I've, I've, been, I've had chats in previous years with it, so about matters around climate science, and they fully admit that they won't bring in an outside expert who was a climate scientist to adjudicate on a press complaint. They'll just do it in-house, and they just woefully don't have the in-house capacity, expertise, etc., to... to, to to rule on areas of complex science and things. And you'd think on an issue of economics, something might be a little bit more straightforward, but I just don't have faith in something like Ipso to do. So therefore, is it is it literally a kind of Wild West environment where publish and be damned, you know, they can do what they like? And effectively that is, I, I think, what's pretty much happening at the moment. Um, so I think there is increasingly a role, sadly, for the likes of my colleague Simon and others to sort of try and call out and correct. But you're always doing it reactively. So you're always one step behind these kind of orchestrated efforts. So it is, again, the dynamic of that is, is misshaped and is, is very problematic. Um, and it's not just climate change. Obviously, we're dealing with misinformation, intentional or otherwise, all over the place, whether we're talking about what's going on in the Middle East at the moment or what. You know, the, wherever you look in the, in the media ecosystem and the wider political system it serves or, again, which, what form of relationship you want to talk about, there's all kinds of problems with misinformation and then you layer on social media and the amplification and distortion of that. But to be honest, all, all likes of myself and my colleague Simon can do is just try and, as yeah. best we can, call, call this stuff out and, and shine a spotlight on it. I, you know, 10, 15 years ago, when I was predominantly more writing about climate science rather than the policy response to, to the, what the science was saying, but and there was an era of the same newspapers, same outlets, relentlessly attacking the scientists when I was writing at The Guardian, sort of saying this would be far more healthy if we actually diverted all of this debate and rancor and everything into the policy debate. That's where we need to be having healthy the arguments and kind of laying out the evidence and arguing the toss in that kind of environment, not around the, around the science. But I think, um, in, a, in a way, it gets to the fundamentals of why carbon brief exists. We're just in the business of explaining explaining the hell out of climate change, both the science and the policy. Yeah. So if you had good faith debate around that and around the policy, and you talked about all of the, the nuance and the 
range of uncertainties and things. That that would be good. But I think there's a obviously for many of these ideological titles, um, they've got a bigger thing they're trying to push, and they're trying to push a worldview. Yeah. And the net zero transition doesn't really sit very well as they see it. I would argue that it actually sits very well with job creation and economic transition and move to a better, healthier sort of economy, planet, etc. It's interesting how the business press, that deal in more the reality-based world, if you like, it is the FT and Bloomberg and Reuters that are much better at reporting stuff. How should coverage take into account yesterday's Nature Climate Change research suggesting our 1.5 degree budget is kind of half what we thought? That we've got to get there by 2034? Or to broaden that out so slightly, how do we report on quite how serious the threats are? Because as soon as we write stories like that, we get people accused of being doom mongers. But there's some scary realities. There's no avoiding it. Because if that's the latest scientific finding, you've, we've got to report on it, you know, squarely, honestly, and fully. I don't. I don't. There's no sugarcoating. There's, you know. But I, I do think you don't just want to be on the doom beat, just reporting the, do, the doom and gloom. You have to be doing you know, what you guys do, what many of us do is report, okay, that, that's, the, that's the evidence, yeah. so what do we do? Like we, and, there's, and there's lots of things we can do and should be doing. Tell, tell the truth, as uh, Greta Thunberg advised us. Um, thank you so much uh, to Leo. I'm Julie and I'm from the Wooden Trust. So we're here to um, demonstrate to people the power of partnerships in supporting the woods and trees that we have right here in the UK. So that's about... Um, protecting what we already have, ancient woodlands and veteran trees, and also about growing um, and planting, creating trees for the future. I've been working for Trust for less than a year. This is a really fantastic event. <laughs> so we've got a VR headset with us today because it's very difficult to bring the woods and trees into a conference centre in the middle of London. Um, so by putting on the headset, you are in an immersive experience where we're taking you into our ancient woodlands from all across the UK. We've got a whole list of woods that you can tour. And you basically stand in there with a soundscape and you just experience what it's like to stand in a wood. It's digital nature bathing. It's the best we can, we can bring into this space. Earned media discussion turned to paid media, featuring a great panel, including Pamela Stathaki of Dentsu, Jake Dubbins, co-founder and managing director of Media Bounty, and starting things off was Matt Winner, environmental economist and stand-up comedian. I don't know about other industries, but the advertising industry seems to be the most self-congratulatory industry in the world uh, and has awards for every single line of work, every single week. So there's never a week goes by that there's no, not awards for something in, in advertising. So the advertising industry talks a lot about effectiveness. You know, it does build brands, it builds memory structures. It makes, a lot of people talk about both mental and physical availability. And if it's in your brain and it's at the, at the sort of shelf, you're going to buy it. So it's a, it's a really important industry, but it is massively in service at the moment of both consumerism, and it is also in service of high carbon and fossil fuel industries. Uh, and there is a kind of coming reckoning to that. You know, we've just seen that uh, the Shell account has been won uh, by Havas, and Shell have publicly said that they are doubling down on fossil fuels, reducing their renewable uh, investment, their head of renewables is gone, they're, they're making 200 people redundant in their low-carbon uh, sector. So advertising that sort of product and service is enabling that strategy. So it is a hugely powerful industry, 
it needs to make some choices uh, about what future it is trying to paint. It is hugely powerful. It's actually, I think, uh, un un low understanding of how powerful it is and how it shapes culture as well. What do you mean, like, yeah. the public at large has a low yeah. understanding? Because presumably the industry is going, ha, we're really powerful. And nobody knows. Kinda. I think a yeah. lot of advertising businesses don't want to be famous because they make their brands and their the, the, those that influence the brands uh, yeah. and the creators, the sports people, famous. Yeah. Yeah, because now you mention it, even like you know, if you have fairly sort of traditional habitual listening, like I do, like today program, I only ever hear the same advertising gurus on. I've been listening to it for about 30 years, so yeah, I see what you mean. And just just quickly, because we've got so many other industries in today, um, just explain a little bit about what Media Bounty does. Yeah, so we're a B Corp uh, advertising agency. We run creative uh, media planning and buying and also sustainability consultancy. We have a project called Act Climate Labs that does a lot of research into persuadable audiences across the country, so not the bubble that we are all in today. You know, people out there who whom climate is not yeah. top of the list, you know, cost of living crisis yeah. is, is front and centre for them, mm -hmm. so we, we talk a lot about how to reach those audiences about these issues in order to, to transition into, um, uh, into climate action. Okay, great, um, lots more to unwrap, thank you so much for that. Pamela, let's come to you, so how, how um, necessary or crucial are marketing and advertising methods in, in enabling a transition to net zero for you? Uh, I'd say, you know, to, to what we've heard today, massively important. Um, if I can just start off with uh, Vincent Creative's uh, recent uh, CMO survey, which uh, surveyed uh, interviewed over 700 chief marketing officers. Uh, this study showed us that 88% of marketers believe that um, advertisement that is uh, um, doing it in, in a meaningful way can really have a huge positive impact on society. So to kind of uh, build on what Jake already said, we have this great opportunity, because I see it as a great opportunity to really raise awareness and educate uh, consumers and the public around what climate change is, why, we're, why we are where we are, and what the net zero transition plan and pathway could be. Um, but one point I think that's really important that we should highlight is that we're responsible to stop disinformation. There's a lot of disinformation yeah. on that that is confusing people about what is right and what is wrong. Yeah. And that's why one reason, I'm, I'm one, one month in, in Dentsu, which is why I was really excited to, to join Dentsu, was actually that we have a key focus around sustainable consumption. Because this is really actually demonstrating to consumers and to the public of how to do it, how to, how to join the, the, the net zero pathway. Because some people might say they don't need to be educated in, in, in consuming sustainably, they just need to stop having stuff like pushed at them the whole time. So it's a, it's a real like trade-off between this kind of enforced consumerism and teaching them how to be good consumers. Exactly, and I think to, you know, as an industry, we have to take responsibility for that for decades, we've been selling stuff, and maybe stuff yeah. that people didn't necessarily need. Yes. But now we have this amazing opportunity to harness a superpower, which is essentially nudging people towards a, a lifestyle that's more low, low carbon, um, and really being mindful of what they're buying and why they're buying it. Uh, we have this amazing ability and creative innovation that we can actually start showing people that and making things like electrical vehicles or plant-based diets irresistible, just like we've done in the past with other products. So that's where you see the sort of mission lying. Okay, thank you very much for that. Matt, hello. Hi. Last time I saw you, you were you were doing your comedy show, which is absolutely hilarious, but I think consumer consumerism 
probably gets a little bit of an examination in your, in your work. How do you feel about, uh, do you think marketing and advertising is crucial to making net zero happen, or do you think it's an impediment? It's both. Definitely both. <laughs> nice compliment. Yeah, it's no simple answer. Um, yeah, and, and look, you know, there's obviously the, the advertising industry itself, and, and within there you've got good and bad examples. I think we could all you know, maybe talk about them a little bit more. Um, and I think that will change. It has changed around public acceptability of certain topics and public understanding of certain topics. But it is also... At times it feels like, as someone who doesn't work in advertising, who sort of watches it and tries to understand what's happening and, and uh, you know, take it in and, and, and talk about it. Um, it, it does feel like a bit of a wild west still when you have companies claiming, you know, I work in this industry and I still don't understand the difference between carbon neutral, carbon negative, you know, zero. The general, you know, the general public is not going to understand that. It's just it's seeing a, a slogan, and you know, we, we definitely need claims around certain things to be, if not standardised, at least constantly checked and you know, put to task properly. Um, and so, as much as there's, you know, there are opportunities in the, in the industry, we also need proper sort of monitoring and accountability and compliance and all that sort of stuff with the with, with an industry around, you know, an area that's, that's not set in stone. Do you have a favourite example of greenwash? I mean, the most recent example I saw was, what was it, a couple of last week? Shell were sponsoring Fortnite players. So basically getting, you know, into the minds of young children. <laughs> Oh, like they're the playing on the computer game yeah. Fortnite. Yeah, they're playing like yeah. influencers to do sponsored content on there and stuff. Like that. You know, there's really there's there's uh, and that's just the most recent one that yeah. you know. Every time I see something like that, you know, come across something like that, I normally screenshot it and put it away for I'll be able to write a joke about this at some point yeah. in the near future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's also quite depressing, isn't it? Oh, utterly depressing. <laughs> which is why you've got to kind of. But again, you need people. You need people taking it seriously, and you also need it to be amplified and it to be pointed out. And you know, there's no nothing better than sort of shining a light on things to to, to kind of bring it out uh, into the light. And, and you know, some people maybe at companies maybe aren't bothered about that, and that's absolutely fine. But you know, you then have to deal with the consequences. I'm at North London um, Energy from Waste Plant Incinerator where they have a sign outside and it says powering the circular economy. I love that one. Incinerator. Yeah. Um, so, um, Jake, coming back to you. So, Matt's picked, you know, mentioned greenwash and, you know, how horrendous it is. And it, it seems to wear everyone down. I mean, sort of within without the industry as well. And it's like, you know, who benefits from this long term? It's, it's, a, it's a kind of corrosive kind of thing that happens, but it does happen. We have now different rules coming in. So in the UK, as I understand it, the Competition Markets Authority is sort of the kind of greenwash police. Uh, in Europe, there's similar rules. You know, all these kind of different changes. Um, do you see people tightening up and getting, I think, was it Matt referred to the Wild West? Is, is, are things getting a little bit better? And are they going to get better? I think so, yes. Um, definitely the CMA in the UK, the, uh, in, in Europe the uh, Green Claims Directive 
And then in the US, the Federal Trade Commission, for the first time, is looking at green claims for the first time in 10 years. So there is an awful lot of legislative tools now being uh, looked at to clamp down on this. Um, and I would like to call out the, the sort of work of the ASA in this as well, because the ASA haven't just started coming after uh, advertising for substantiation and saying that we haven't quite given the evidence for this, but critically, uh, material emission and cherry-picking. Yes. So they've banned HSBC ads, they've banned Anglian Water ads, mm -hmm. who, which were saying that we're doing a great job without saying that they're pumping shit into the water as well. Um, they, they've banned Shell ads, and more re most recently Repsol, uh, and again, specifically on that issue of material emission. So it means that now, in advertising, that sort of baseline goes from where you can kind of just say how much you're investing in net zero, but without investing in, you know, in fossil fuel economy. Whereas now, you're going to have to balance that if you're going to talk about your, uh, your either your renewables or your, uh, or your net zero products and services. So that balance is uh, now coming in. So... Very big organisations are looking at this. I mean, we're currently doing a sort of global piece of work with Panasonic on looking at now all over the world what is the legislative landscape of uh, uh, of multiple jurisdictions to make sure that you know if they are doing good things and they are on a genuine journey rather than paying lip service, they can do that straightforwardly and with radical transparency. Okay, and in the interest of balance, Anglia Water would like to say they're great. I'm sure. So there you go. Um, so we've started to see. Um, some of the pitfalls um, around you know, uh, unsubstantiated claims, lack of context. Um, what, what are other pitfalls or, or problems that, that you kind of need to be aware of, Pamela? I think the main thing is that, you know, you already mentioned like a cherry picking group that you've done. Um, you know, product or service might have certain green attributes, which is great to talk about, but then holistically, what are you doing as a business? So I think that, that's been uh, a key challenge. Um, other things that, to be fair, is really complicated, climate change is a complicated topic, usually. Um, people find it difficult to understand, so clear messaging is, uh, is a challenge. I think that's a great opportunity, I'd say, um, to do that. Have you seen any good examples of clear messaging that you think are good? Obviously, a dense example. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can choose one of your own if you want. Yeah. Um, so uh, I can give an example of Dents and I can give a non-Dents example. So uh, we have partnered with IKEA during uh, their, um, I guess as a twist to, to Black Friday. We're very close to, to Thanksgiving, that's why I wanted to highlight this one. We know that Black Friday has been notoriously known as uh, you know, trying to promote overconsumption and that has had a pull out basically to our planet. Um, what we did is work with uh, ITN Spain and really um, changed the narrative around, uh, it was called Green Friday, and really the focus here was around promoting a circular economy. So what was being sold were second-hand um, or pre-loved pre pre um, furniture. And that not only demonstrated to people that it's actually quite easy and accessible, um, and it demonstrated the, the legacy that uh, IKEA had, it just demonstrated that we actually don't have to consistently over-consume new products. Do you remember when Patagonia did a Black Friday advert that said, don't buy this jacket? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's a great example. Yeah. Yeah. Although then people said, oh, they probably sold me more jackets. <laughs> 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 people 
contrarian species, the human race, aren't they? Um, Matt, have you got any good examples where you think things have worked or in clear moments? Or bad examples? I, I, I actually enjoy bad examples. Bad examples? No, I mean, I maybe we should throw this out to the audience. At some point, I'd be interested to hear who else has got some. I mean, the problem is, working in the industry, you know, my wife has had to put up with me complaining about Exxon adverts for the last <laughs> five years. Every time we go anywhere, there's something about producing something made of algae and I then lecture, you know, ruin our holiday by complaining about this because we're getting on the Eurostar and it's everywhere. So I'm, I'm gonna, I think it's better to say, I, I get too worked up about it and too, um, I'd, I'd focus too much on the negative ones. So I'd actually be more interested to hear if anyone's got a good example. Yeah, okay, Jake, Yeah, I, I, I think that the, a lot of the mistake that um, advertising in this particular space is often we will talk to the converted already, so it's, it's, it's sort of easy to speak to the choir. Um, uh, and we've done a lot of research outside of that, you know, in a group called the Persuadables, so 69% of the population, who is, you know, pro-climate action, but it's just not at the top of their list. So I'll call out a, a, a piece of work done by another organisation that, that was the eBay and Love Island partnership. Yeah. That, you know, if, yeah. if you reach popular culture where Love Island, I mean, I'm not a fan of Love Island, but... You know, eBay partnered with Love Island. All they talked about was pre-loved clothes, pre-loved, uh, you know, uh, materials. And guess what? They sold a shit lot of second-hand, you know, clothing on something that is culturally a massive, massively significant in this country. Not by saying climate, not by saying net zero, not by saying sustainability, but by actually talking in the language yeah. of, of an audience that is the mainstream audience outside of London. It's the you know, it's, it's, it's everybody else. It's a really nice example. By the way, you said shit twice Sorry. now, so third time, willing her of mine. No, I'm only joking. But the, the Love Island thing's so fascinating to me because it, it seems like every, all the stars were aligned. So you had you had a contestant, Brett Stanaland, who's now a, a campaigner and influencer for sustainable fashion, who went on the show and clearly refused to wear any of the garments, which were from a fast fashion brand, and gave little lectures during the show rather than trying to find his partner. So he got Heathrow quite quickly. But then you also had ITV's corporate strategy, and then they just seemed to be they seemed to be under a lot of pressure. So it all kind of worked. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. I think it, it does have to feel not too forced. Yeah. And I think that's getting the balance is really tricky with that, with messaging or when to do it and when yeah. not to do it. And, Quite who's doing it? You know, there's a there's a real kind of mix there. Yeah. Of, you know, who's doing it? Who, who the message is coming from? And it has to be authentic. Yeah. And that's you know, I think the public in general and most of us in this room can smell when something is, you know, not authentic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And and so, you know, you you want to work with people that already have a message to give or or, or try and work to get you know, and I, I, the, the idea of influence, influencer culture and other things like that didn't really exist until quite recently, yeah. but it does allow, I guess, people that people know to, to talk more authentically, if they do care about it, but then there's examples of influencers in the US talking about how they love gas all the time, and how they love cooking with gas, you know, yeah. they probably don't, they're just being paid by, you know, yeah. the yeah. gas industry to do it. <laughs> yeah, so I suppose, I mean, what I am really struck by as well, a couple of things you've mentioned, so Jake, you were talking about the... Um, the, what did you call them? The people who the persuadables, the persuadables. Yeah. right? So it's almost like you're saying they just need to, you just need to flip a few different switches in the right order, and then people will 
understand the win from from some of this net zero stuff. Is that it? Is it? I, I, wouldn't, say it's a, I wouldn't say it's as simple as that, but I, but I do think that, that like I said earlier, we get caught up in this climate bubble. So yeah. uh, last year we ran a project going out to the northeast, uh, Yorkshire, uh, and the West Midlands into rural communities on the streets of, of, of these places, asking people what they thought of net zero, sustainability, and, and people don't care. You know, people, yeah. have, people don't understand the language, they, they don't, they're not really hearing the language. I mean, 40% of this country doesn't read news brands, for example. So yeah. we're often caught up in this, in this, um, uh, in this sort of semi-reality where everybody think, we think everybody's on the same page, but they're just simply not. Um, so yeah, you have to do it, don't we? Because I think there was an earlier panel with Sarah Mukherjee, and she was talking about yes. diversity and inclusivity. Yes. And if I understood her right, what she was basically saying was the consensus that you've got for net zero is there, yes. but it's more fragile than you think. And you just heard uh, Leo talk about the Overton window, how it could move, and yes. it's just a bunch of people like us. It's not diverse enough to sustain. Exactly right, and we, and we have to go out into those communities and meet people where they are, yeah. speak their language, speak on a local basis as well. Yeah. Because this sort of 69%, you know, Pamela talked about misinformation, yeah. and some mis- misinformation is deliberate, you know, mm-hmm. some of it is coming from, you know, the fossil fuel lobby group, some of it is coming from petrostates, <coughs> and some of it is coming from the new outrage economy that we see, you know, across the internet. Yeah. And, and this stuff is converging together, and that that target is also the persuadable audiences to keep the status quo. Right. So it's not just as simple as you know flicking a few st- switches, but it is the responsibility of progressive businesses who want to grow their own businesses and brands in a, in a responsible way, but also government if we have a united political sort of consensus, which we did a while ago, not so much anymore, and probably philanthropy. To actually communicate this in a way that is, you know, sensible and palatable, and in the language of, you know, everybody else. There was so much good stuff for the Net Zero Festival, but sadly, there's not enough time to share all of it. So the last thing I'll note is that at the end of a day of climate science, greenwashing, protesters, misinformation, and tons more, we were a bit tense. So for the final festival touch, we decided to take advantage of the pop-up massage facility. Don't worry, it wasn't a good cause. Your head should be heavy, your body should be heavy. It is now. So we've been kindly invited here by the organisers to offer people a 10-minute back, neck, shoulder massage, because often at exhibitions and seminars, people can be either walking around a lot all day or if they're in the seminar sitting all day, we're asking people is to pay what they feel and whatever they're able to give not only pays for their massage but they're paying it forward for us to do massage in four children's hospitals around London. So these are children with life-limiting conditions or at end of life. We go into the hospices and we give it to the children if it's safe to do so but also to their caregivers as well. So you're not only enjoying a massage but you're paying it forward as well. So our company name is Community Massage Project. Um, We're here in London at the moment, but we actually work all over the UK. And um, they can um, find us online at communitymassageproject.co.uk. Amazing. Now I'm just going to just... That is... Oh, that's good. That's the stuff. 
Well, we'll leave it there for this episode of Wicked Problems. We hope you enjoyed some of this found audio from the Net Zero Festival at Business Green. Check us out for our next episode. Myself and our co-host, Claire Brady. Subscribe to the newsletter at news.wickedproblems.uk. And if you're going to the second day of the Net Zero Festival, get yourself a massage. You deserve it. Take care.